0: This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist, a podcaster, and an entrepreneur. Today, I'm speaking to Joseph Jaffe, who likes to make a bit of a ruckus in the marketing space. In fact, I've actually heard Joe on a few other podcasts in the past, and I wanted to get him on Mate so that he can speak about some of the issues that are relevant to us every day. We talk about how marketing has changed over the last 10 years, um, how customers have grown more empowered, how brands uh, can leverage their existing customers to generate new ones, and we talk about some of the marketing shifts that you might not have foreseen that are coming in 2017. Joe also runs an agency called Evolution, which helps uh, startups connect with brands to create new opportunities. It is a really fascinating discussion, so let's go talk to him. So, who are you and what do you do? So,
1: that, that is straight out of the Mitch Joel playbook, my friend. <laughs> um, my name is Joseph Jaffe. I am an entrepreneur. I am an author. Um, I've written four books and uh, I'm currently running my second startup called Evolution, which I think we'll get to a little bit later.
0: Yes, you're right, Joseph. I did steal that from Mitch's podcast, Six Pixels of Separation. I think it's a really nice intro um, and it lets people kind of explain where they're coming from and, and it's open enough for them to kind of give a uh, a response that represents them, I think. so. Yeah. And I love Mitch's podcast as well.
1: And my response represents me, which is I'm already hijacking your
0: podcast and, and, and causing trouble. So, I'm excited so, about so that. Now, <laughs> so, now we understand each other. Good, good. And uh, and look, uh, I'm excited to to get into that. So, Joseph, I, th- I think actually the first thing that I wanted to kind of kick off with was um, the some of the observations you've made about marketing and branding over the last kind of 10 or so years. You're an ex-agency guy uh, and you've kind of really been, I guess, observing what's happening in the marketplace and then calling it out and, you know, um, like you said, causing a bit of trouble. Uh, So, you've written four books and I think all of them have had a very similar- uh, a few similar themes that have run between them. The first I want to talk about is uh, customer empowerment. So... um, your your first book, which is titled Life After the 30-Second Spot, really focused on how the world is moving from, I guess, mega brands who um, put out mass media advertising through 30-second um, ads on TV, but also billboards and um, all the kind of mass media things, and how we're shifting from that period towards um, a, an era of more customer empowerment, So, tell me in your own words, kind of uh, how you feel about that and and kind of what spurred that observation on. Well, you know, to be honest with you, I don't
1: even remember talking about customer empowerment in the first book in the sense that, but it's great that I'm being reminded of that because I wrote that book uh, 13 years ago. So, 13 years ago, I wrote a book that said the 32nd spot, which is a metaphor, which is a the embodiment of, of the spray and pray, the command and control, doing business a certain way. But, but the 30 second spot in its existing form, and that's a key phrase, is either dead, dying, or or has outlived this usefulness. And of course, the phrase again is in its existing form, meaning in this analog, in this linear, in this non-digital form, uh clearly to clearly to me um, was kind of stayed. And outdated and irrelevant, and I think it's been proven. You know, a lot of people will say, "Well, Joe, the thirty-second spot uh, still exists." And I'm like, "Well, it exists, but it's on life support in the sense that there is so much wastage built in the model. And if it did, ex- and 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 if it did work, in fact, and and of course, I'll take a step back for a second. One of the things I said, which is, the question is not, "Does it work?" Um, of course it works, but does it work as well as it used to? And, and based on, on the lack of efficacy now, what is the stuff that, that doesn't work doing to the stuff that does work? A lot of people look back at, uh, or look at the whole space and they say, the problem isn't advertising. It's bad advertising. In fact, Lee Clow, who's one of the greatest creative directors of all time, the guy behind Apple's 1984 commercial, he said that. But the problem is that too much of it is in fact bad advertising, and so ultimately if there are these jewels or diamonds or nuggets they are literally being suffocated in this swamp or this quagmire of crap and and because of that the the whole thirty second spot um, you know uh, portfolio to me has outlived its usefulness and if you ever wanted proof that what I was saying in fact was was bullseye in terms of accuracy. Just look at the number of companies that are failing today. Look at the number of of you know the Macy's, the Sears, all these you know, the Kodaks, the the uh the Borders, the Radio Shacks, there are so many examples, the blockbusters, all of these campaigns that built their business or at least turned to the 32nd spot to sustain their brand, to sustain their market share, to sustain their, their brand equity. And all of them have failed. And so for me, you know, so where does does consumer customer empowerment live? Well, I mean, it it rises to the top because at the end of the day, we today, you know, I mean, Edelman came out with their trust barometer and they said, who do you trust? And the answer was someone just like me, your your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, a perfect stranger on Twitter, uh, movies, um, Hollywood pr- would produce these movies, and many of them would be absolute drivel. And how would we determine which movie we saw? We would, you know, we would see uh, commercials on Thursday night. That was the invention of must-see TV, and 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 these Thursday nights with Friends and Seinfeld and Mash and all the and ER here on NBC. And we would go to um, we would go to the newspapers, and there would be full page and a spread with all these quotes that were taken completely out of context to talk about the movie, you know, the, the the blockbusters that were hitting the screens on Friday. But the fact is today, all we do is we go to Rotten Tomatoes and we just see whether, in fact, people just like me or just like you think the movie is see or skip. And on the basis of consumer empowerment, you know, the wisdom of crowds, people just like you and just like me, an entire studio that spent hundred million, pretty much all of that investment can go out the door in one fell swoop based on, you know, the vote of one. And so, you know, if I did write about consumer empowerment in the first book, um, that's awesome because it is a common uh, common theme and a common thread, as you said. It is something that ultimately, you know, I felt from the get-go that we as consumers, we have a voice, we have a vote. Um, we have influence and and we have the ability by uniting and unifying with one another through community um, to take down the man, so to speak, and to be able to sort the wheat from the chaff.
0: Okay. Joe, I want to challenge you on something that you said earlier there um, about the, the traditional businesses like Macy's and Blockbuster and those kinds of businesses relying on building their business on the 30-second spot or the 30-second spot metaphor, you know, the, the mass media brand advertising, um, I guess what I wanted to ask is, or, or what I wanted to challenge you on is, um, is it not that they just had a, a, a shitty business um, that couldn't last in the 21st century, or is it really that they were just advertising wrong and through the wrong channels?
1: So, I, I think that's a great challenge. And the reality is, you know, there's that old quote, which is, you can't put lipstick on a pig. <laughs> and, and, the, and, and then the corollary of that in, in our world, in our advertising world is, and to me, this is like uh, fingernails on a chalkboard. When you hear an agency person say, there is no better or quicker way to kill a bad product than with great advertising, which for me is the most uh, hypocritical statement in the whole world. Because if the product was crap, why would you even have accepted the business in the first place and create this great advertising? It's a complete contradiction. Um, and and so I, I completely agree actually with you, which is our goal is to make unbelievable products. And the real question then becomes how many unbelievable products have unbelievable advertising versus, uh, it's, a, it's a simple two-by-two two matrix, versus unbelievable products with crap advertising and then ultimately to get all the way down to crap products with crap advertising and so you know what it comes down to and and you know I, i've been thinking about this um quite um intensely over the last few weeks and even few months which is the take consumer packaged goods for example this entire industry has actually been built up and sustained by the 30 second spot whether you're colgate or crest or Aquafresh or one of these key toothpaste products. They're all basically the same. They all work or they all don't work. For the most part, they all work. They all clean your teeth, they all freshen your breath, they all help eradicate tartar, and yet they're about 200 to 300 skews with, with baking soda, with, you know, with minty fresh essence, with all these unnecessary add-ons and, and uh, bells and whistles. And the only way that these brands have been built and differentiated for the most part has been through advertising. And now in this world where there is so much clutter and so much choice, and quite frankly, where younger consumers in particular aren't even watching this advertising, Mm -hmm. how on earth are you going to sustain these products, whether they're great or whether they're crap? And for me, this is the downfall. This is the tipping point. Of this entire industry, when advertising, which is this false prophet, this false god, has propped up these companies, has built them and sustained them for so long, when that no longer, when the emperor, you know, when the curtain is revealed and the emperor has no clothes, I'm not sure how any of these brands can sustain themselves. And if you ever wanted a proof, uh, a proof point, look at Dollar Shave, look at what Dollar Shave Club has done and and did to Schick and to Gillette. To the point where dollar shave was acquired for a billion dollars by by Unilever totally yeah so I mean so I, I would just say for people listening, think about what I just said i 'm not a conspiracy theorist i'm not a madman i'm just I'm literally just calling it like I see it mm-hmm. and I'm saying just think about our business, you know and and rather if you, if you're an advertising person rather than think, well, I can come up with a better real time tweet or red- or a better jingle or a better tagline i would I would say. You should rather go back to your client and not only talk to them about a better product, but what happens when all the products are great? What happens when there is no way to differentiate and sustain those, you know, those better products? You're going to have to go elsewhere. And for me, I've got a couple of theories about where to go.
0: Okay, nice cliffhanger. Um, I wanted to... uh... (laughs) I wanted to ask about something that you mentioned there because I'm I'm s I'm standing here nodding to all the stuff that you're saying and in, in, in agreement and um kind of what resonates uh and, and um what I was thinking about as you were talking was you know Seth Godin talks a lot about being remarkable, building products that are remarkable. And in essence, um what he's talking about is things that are worth remarking on. So essentially Make your product better um, and uh, worry less about communicating um, and shouting to the masses about your product, because if you make things remarkable, then you will differentiate yourself um, just based purely on being amazing and having customers love what you do rather than trying to, like you say, put lipstick on a pig. So, um, as you were talking through the examples of toothpaste and things like that, where they're differentiated, and I'm using inverted quotes here, differentiated, you know, it's not really a differentiation to have a different minty freshness or something that's maybe a little bit more whitening or whatever. They're not really hitting the mark of remarkable. You don't buy Crest Toothpaste or Colgate and go, oh my God, I can never use anything else because this is amazing. And there's some products where I do feel that, where I, where I try something for the first time and, and I say, cool, the rest of this category is dead because this brand has just absolutely nailed it for me. So, how do you kind of get to that point? And how to? It's it's a bit of a a bit of a grating kind of thing when an agency is hired as a communications uh, development. You know that, that's their whole thing. Agencies are hired to develop communications messages for them to turn around and say, "Well, we think your product's crap, so let's work on fixing your crappy product before we work on communicating your crappy product."
1: You know, as you're saying this, I'm massaging my uh, Apple AirPods in my hand. <laughs> That, that, I know that's an image that most people are, are now hoping that they can get out of their mind uh, and, <laughs> and will be seared into their psyche for the rest of their lives. But, <laughs> but, you know, here's a product that, you know, they came out and they said, this is courageous coming out with a, you know, with a wireless uh, Bluetooth, um, small little um, headphones in a sense. And, and I actually thought it was, they were full of crap um, talking about courageous. This was courage. I didn't think it was courageous at all. Um, but I will tell you that since I bought them, I absolutely love them, and they are remarkable products. Um, I I was in Chicago last week, walking through this gale force wind, and my AirPods stayed in my ear. And I've run on the treadmill, and my AirPods stayed in my ear. And I love the fact how I can walk to the back of the plane where where my phone is still charging in my seat, and I can still absolutely hear you know uh, whatever was playing on my iPhone. And so to me. The product still has to the product or the service still has to stay in the middle, but you know you you spoke about a cliffhanger and I mean for me I've got a, it's a four it's one of those Venn diagrams with four um, circles that intersect and and let's put the product in the middle, not the brand, the product in the middle or the actual offering, the value proposition, whether it's tangible or intangible. For me, the four buckets, and I know we're going to talk about at least one of them. One bucket is customer experience. One bucket is, consumer, is uh, CSR or corporate social responsibility, actually giving back and connecting and plugging into the community. Not so much purpose, but actually making the world a better place. One to me is employee engagement, attracting and retaining the best and the brightest talent. And one is innovation and specifically, you know, embracing and incorporating technology. And that kind of leads into a little bit of my evolution focus, which is collaborating with entrepreneurs and startups. But for me, those are the four essences of what differentiates a company today, you know, where where the product lives in the middle. But I think if you start with this assumption that there is parity with respect to the product, all planes take you from A to B. All car rental companies take you from A to B or whatever. The, all hotels generally don't have bed bugs if you're, you know, beyond a certain, you know, <laughs> so. one star in New York, right? So if that's the case, that there is parity, then what the hell is going to differentiate? And those are, to me, you know, employee engagement, CSR, um, customer experience and, and innovation. Those are the four things that are going to kind of make or break you.
0: It's interesting, Joe, those four um, buckets or topics that you're speaking about have nothing to do with the product itself. They're all kind right. of tangential to the product. They're, they're value adds. Um, in marketing, we refer to them as uh, intangible value, and we talk about how communications can create intangible value, something that is not uh, a physical thing that you can take away. Uh, it's not- an extra um, widget or a bell or a whistle or something that you get with the product itself. Um, It's not even the way it's packaged. Um, It's just something that you associate with the brand. So, um, CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, you know, a particular brand gives this much money to charity or, you know, a buy one, get one kind of approach where you buy one set of glasses and they give another set of glasses to a child in need or something. These sorts of things are all... Um, completely intangible, and it it only exists that the value I'm talking about the value only exists in the mind of the consumer. So, how do you go about creating that? And and um, well, actually, there's two questions there. How do you go about creating that? And then the second one, um, which maybe you can answer um, afterwards, is uh, is that really a, a defendable position if it's not a tangible thing? If it's just a psychological phenomena that's um, that's in the consumer's mind?
1: Well, I mean the whole thing is i would say let's get away from you know talking about perception and consumers minds you know we talk about you know the battle for the mind the battle for the heart the battle for the stomach the battle for the purse you know let's make this really tangible and the only perception to me should be the perception of value look You know, you. uh, I'll I'll give you two examples that Aussie audiences. Although I'm sure both of us being podcasters, our audiences are are global. Um, So one example is Nando's Chicken Land. So I started my career working for Nando's. I was the third marketing employee in the company's history. And you know, when I used to go and 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 train um, the local franchisees about marketing and the value and the importance of marketing and customer service etc i mean i was 23 24 years old what the hell did i know other than than what i inherently felt was right about marketing i would say two people could can go and buy a bmw And one may be saved up for 40 years to be able to afford this BMW, something that that the entire life they aspired to buy. And another one has probably 12 cars in their, you know, motorcade or in their garage, including Porsches and whatever the case may be. And this is just their station car or their cheapo car. So here are two cars, the same product, the same tangible product that cost the same amount of money. And there is a very, very different perception of value. And so what I would always say to the franchisees would be if anybody walks into a Nando store and tells you your chicken is too expensive, it's because you're not providing them enough value. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that because it, the value is subjective. So it's less about, you know, the brand promise is perceived. It's actually about the perception of value in, in my opinion. And so, And so for me – you know, when you, when you distill it down to, to the essence, ultimately what we're talking about um, is, yes, we want to pursue a great product. So here's the other example. Um, I saw this on Instagram, um, a company, a New Zealand company called Allbirds, which I assume you've heard of. Have you heard of them? No, I haven't. Okay, so this is, this is right now we're living exactly the point that I'm trying to make. Zero advertising, right? My fourth book, Zero Paid Media is the New Marketing Model. I saw uh, this magnificent visual campaign on Instagram for all birds. They're a New Zealand company and these products are all wool products. Um, and they are billed as the world's most comfortable shoot. And guess what? They are. And I have two pairs, and I don't know how many uh, all birds I've sold through word of mouth, through recommendations, through referrals, <laughs> through just evangelizing because they- I love this product.
0: They should give you a, a promo code, so every time you mention them on a podcast, um, you get a kickback.
1: And, and you and you know what? According to the basic laws of social media and podcasting, they absolutely should. But the point is, you know what? So. I'm going to say two points that are, that are not necessarily congruous in a sense. One is absolutely they should. They should know who Joseph Jaffe is. They should know how many Twitter followers I, I have. They should know that I'm a full-time author and they should know that I'm talking about them. And it's not that hard to monitor social media, listening and monitoring who's saying what about you. So there's no question that they're probably not doing a good job in that regard. But Maybe they don't need to, because the ultimate, and, and I and I said this in when I wrote join the conversation, is the ultimate level of engagement and and um, you know and loyalty or love that a customer has for you is when they will step in and defend your honor when somebody is talking smack about you, mm-hmm. you know, on a social media forum, and and you know what, and and, and of course this is where. I think a lot of this stuff is an art, not a science is knowing when to step in and when to step up and when to just pull back and say nothing. Apple has been brilliant at pretty much being quite apathetic. They will, it doesn't matter how many AirPods I've sold or will sell. They will never ever reach out and acknowledge me or thank me or incentivize me because that's the cult of Mac. Mm, and fact, and, and you might call them arrogant but ultimately, it's who they are.
0: And in fact, they, it's almost the opposite. They rule with an iron fist um, and they, they smack down um, people who break their rules and their terms of service and things like that. And yet, they still have a cult following.
1: Right. And, and, but, but they are, you know, as uh, Malcolm Gladwell would call them, an outlier, you know. And so, and so, I think it's important for us to recognize that they are not the norm, they truly do still live in the aura of Steve Jobs, in the reality distortion field.
0: I haven't heard that term in a while.
1: But 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 they are, you know, I always say to people that the word exception, you know, comes from the word or, or, or lives in the word exceptional. To be exceptional, you have to be an exception. You can't be exceptional and be just like everybody else.
0: It just doesn't work. I love that. I love that. Yeah, Totally. Um, Joe, I wanted to ask you about um, one of your other books, uh, Flip the Funnel, which uh, is really- Well, tell me, what is the book about? Uh, and because um, we're kind of starting to, to, with this conversation, get into that territory. Um, so, tell me about the book and, uh, and what your kind of core message is from it. So, in my
1: opinion, Flip the Funnel is the best book I'll ever write. Uh, and, and of course, I always you know, say this somewhat um, self-deprecatingly and, and irreverently, my problem is I've written four, so I've peaked too early. But for <laughs> me, this is, the, this, this is the silver bullet of marketing, which is without our customers and quite frankly, without our employees, we have nothing and we are nothing. We can do nothing. We are completely sterile or impotent um, a, a, as marketers or as business people. And so the idea of Flip the Funnel, I mean, the subhead is how to use existing customers to gain new ones. In other words, retention is the new acquisition, that we can grow our business from the inside out through the three Cs, what I call content, conversation, and commendations, by formalizing and scaling advocacy, by truly recognizing that our real work and the real value begins at the point of purchase not culminating with the point of purchase and so the whole idea was that you know the marketing and sales funnel should not get smaller over time it should get bigger larger over time and that's what happens when you flip the funnel so you flip aida awareness interest desire action which is all about acquisition and it becomes aDIA, which is acknowledgement dialogue incentivization and activation and and you know i began the whole thesis by saying what percentage of your revenue comes from repeat, returning, recurring, loyal, you know, customers and revenue? And, 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 you know, in the 80-20 rule, if 80% of your revenue comes from retention versus acquisition, then what percentage of your total marketing dollars go against that retention contribution? And the fact is, there's a chasm. There's a complete, you know, disconnect. Where if 80% of our revenue comes from our customers, we're spending less than 20% of our total dollars on retention versus acquisition. And then I took it one step further. I said, wait a second. Within that 80% revenue contribution coming from retention, you have you know, power users. You have people that buy you a lot. In the B2B world, every agency probably has four or five customers that are responsible for over 50 to 60 to 70% of their total revenue. So if it's true that 60 to 80% of your revenue is coming of your of your actual retention revenue is coming from 10 or 20% of your total customers, why on earth wouldn't you invest and spend disproportionately against them? And that to me became this aha moment which is there is, you know, the company that is prepared to actually invest and get behind retention and not just retention but you know the concept of uh, sat metrics which is a company that that created the net promoter school you know the whole idea is you have either promoters, you have passives or you have detractors. Why on earth wouldn't you put all of your resources against your promoters your zealots the Z of zero, your advocates your raving loyal lunatic fans that that tattoo your brand on their bodies and that's of course rhetorical the answer is you absolutely should figure out how to connect with them
0: what about the the distractors and, and the passives though is it not worth spending money on those guys to turn them into promoters
1: sure but these are but these are still within the the whole you know portfolio of retention Most companies are not spending anything on any of them. In fact, the only ones that they're probably doing anything with are the detractors. Mm. You know, so every time there's another social media snafu or, you know, somebody tells you you suck on Twitter or creates, you know, creates a Facebook page or a piece of video that goes viral, you know, we spend so much time on them because we can't deal with anybody telling us we're not perfect as brands. And and one of the actual messages is, what about all the people that come out and say, you rock, I love you, you're amazing, you're awesome, check out this tattoo that I just put of your brand on my butt. You know, whatever the case may be, I've sold so many AirPods. These are, to me, um, the the real assets that we need to figure out how to mine and how to ultimately activate and invest in
0: and and joe i've worked in uh, organizations where this is not the case in fact i would probably argue that most organizations are not doing this even though your right. book was written many years ago in in 2010 so I, I i guess like one of the frustrations and and one of the challenges i see is um like selling this concept to a boardroom um because it's really difficult to track the ROI of um, re- retaining customers. And it's really difficult to track the ROI of word of mouth. So, how do you sell this, this concept to a boardroom?
1: So, th- th- there are a number of, of really important points that you made there. And, and I think the answer – let's start off with the first point, and I'll probably forget what the others are, so just remind me. Sure. So the, fir- so, so, the first point you basically made, which is, Joe, you wrote this book in 2010. Let's call it the truth. Let's call it the silver bullet. Let's call it, you know, the divine revelation. This is absolutely – this is clearly the answer.
0: Way to talk your own book up.
1: <laughs> well, I said, let's, let's just say it is. Ah, okay. Maybe it isn't, right? <laughs> maybe, I am, maybe I am the false prophet, right? But let's just say this is right. Sure. So, why, why hasn't anybody jumped on the bandwagon? And the answer is many fold. One is, is, look, it's easy to call people lazy. It's easy to call people dumb. The answer is they're not dumb. They're definitely not dumb. Um, are they lazy? They're not really lazy either. So what's the problem? The problem is the organization. The problem is the reorg, the restructure, the budget cut, the talent defection, the, the new CMO coming in who immediately fires the agency and brings in their agency or puts the whole you know, account out to, you know, to bid in a sense. The problem is is twofold, right? One is an organizational one, which is we cannot – establish any momentum over a sustained period of time because what we're talking about here in terms of customer investment and customer efficacy and customer experience is not a short-term quick fix that's the first point point. and related to that is the tyranny of quarterly earnings and short-term thinking and short-term you know this obsession on short-term ROI. I have no problem with accountability. I have no problem with, with tangible deliver, uh, deliverables. I just think, you know, to expect um, a quick fix, a quick hit is, is a fool's errand. And so those are probably the two reasons, right? Why have we not seen another commercial like Apple's 1984 on the Super Bowl capable of transforming a business, a business model, an entire vertical, an entire company? And the answer is, again, You know, it's not that we're not smart, that creative people are not living in organizations right now and agencies capable of coming up with an even better uh, piece of creative than Apple's 1984. It's the fact that they're not being measured correctly, they're not being compensated correctly, they're not being incentivized correctly, um, and, and ultimately the organization is not built to reward them for kind of thinking bigger and taking risks. And that comes back to this whole idea of being more entrepreneurial. Why are we seeing the Ubers and the Airbnbs and the Alibabas and and even the Facebooks um, rising? Because they are inherently entrepreneurial and because they're not being bound and tied down to these short-term metrics and and narrow kind of um, deliverables.
0: That actually is really one of the other areas I wanted to talk to you about, um, this this idea of why brands can't make the transition to some of these shifts that we're seeing, you know, over the last 10 years or so, um, Joseph, you've been a very vocal commenter through your books and through a lot of your other commentary about why brands suck at marketing. Um, And we've seen shifts to, you know, the empowered customer and two-way marketing and the decline of the 30-second spot and how we should be focusing more on retention than on acquisition, all the things that you've written about in your books. And now we're here in 2017, we're still seeing major brands with huge budgets still not taking any of those lessons on board. Or changing anything. And you spoke about some of the reasons why that is, you know, the, the, the rewards and the incentives are not um, set up to reward innovative thinking or, or kind of long-term plays. Um, we're not measuring people correctly or we're not measuring organisations correctly. The the culture is not set up to support that. This whole idea of quarterly earnings and how um, public companies need to report quarterly to the stock market about how they're, how they're going um, doesn't reward long-term plays. But all of those things I, I agree with are contributing to this, but it still doesn't ignore the fact that the shift has happened regardless. And regardless of whether we can measure it correctly or whether we're built to, um, to, to deal with these changes, we need to, because if we don't, we will fail and we will die. Take Blockbuster for an example. So, how do we, um, we get big corporates and brands to uh, adopt these shifts earlier? There is a great quote, which I
1: I love to use, which is um, change happens when the pain of not changing is greater than the pain of changing. And, And I think it's so appropriate because change is hard and change takes longer than we think and change is painful. But ultimately, you know, I mean, listen, it would be great to be motivated by pleasure, but the reality is we live in a world of pain. And so, choosing the lesser of evils becomes um, really important. Now, when you look at a blockbuster, I mean, Blockbuster's model was, in many respects, kind of innovative in, in in of itself. But the compression, the world changed from, you know, from VHS and Betamax to CDs to DVDs to Blu-ray um, to ultimately. Um, a business model that was completely IP and intangible and cloud based in terms of downloading and streaming um, and but also the pricing mechanism within the blockbuster frame um, was so important the late fees and the depositing um, and and they just couldn't change quick enough and you know i was talking to someone the other day which is it's really hard when you have so much infrastructure that is tangible, durable, uh, hard coded, or or built into the ground. In a sense, you know, if you are trying to, you know, build the Second Avenue Subway in New York City or fixing LaGuardia Airport, which is an, I mean, New York airports look like a look like a bad a third world country on a bad day. They look like a third world country. <laughs> In the process of a coup, in a sense, and you think like, this is New York City, this is the capital of the world on, on, on many levels, according to some. How is it that, that our airports look like, like, you know, like disaster zones, in a sense? And the problem is when you have that traffic, and you have the unions, and you have the legacy, and all of this incumbency, it is almost impossible to change. But right. guess what? If you don't change and you don't change quick enough, what happens is a new business or a new business model that just literally, you know, foot sweeps you and, and cuts you off at the knees.
0: It's the inertia of a big business that is, and, uh, and the, the kind of infrastructure and, uh, all the heritage and legacy that is stopping them from innovating quick enough, I guess is kind of the point you're trying to make. But just to use the Blockbuster example. So Blockbuster was, you know, you hire a movie in, in its basic essence. And it started with VHS and then DVD and then Blu-ray. And then eventually everyone, like you said, moved to, um, download on demand or, or rent on demand. But I want to contrast that with, uh, Netflix. So. Everybody today thinks of Netflix as a uh, a streaming service, but Netflix didn't start as that. Netflix was actually a a mail delivery movie rental um, company. That's so, you, right. would, you would rent a movie from Netflix and they would mail it to your letterbox and then you would send it back when you were done and you would rent another one. That, to me, seems very similar to the blockbuster model. There's infrastructure. I guess they didn't have um, as, as many kind of like retail locations and a lot of land, land and things like that. N- but-
1: not as many as. They, ha- they didn't have any. And and so you know a good blockbuster to Netflix example is is in in the US would be uh, Amazon to Barnes and Noble or to wh- whomever the largest bookstore is in in Australia, um, and so bricks and mortar became this noose that was pretty much strangling the the market leader or the incumbent uh, in in the industry, and. And I think the real, I mean, to add to, to build onto what you were saying, the real question is what would have happened had Blockbuster figured out a different way or a more innovative way to leverage their bricks and mortar infrastructure where it actually made sense to still keep that bricks and mortar infrastructure. Um, you know, this weekend, my, my son wanted a game called Jenga. Um, and, um, I wanted to find it and I knew this was one time where Amazon wasn't going to help me because I can buy anything. I buy my hair gel on Amazon. I buy everything on Amazon, Um, but I couldn't get it when he wanted. So, I started calling all these toy stores. Mm -hmm. Half of the toy stores didn't exist anymore. They've all gone out of business. And the other half didn't actually stock this, you know, this game, which is like, you know, it's, it's. I don't know if you know, do you, do you know yeah, the game of Jenga? Jenga is pretty popular. It's like the, exactly. wooden, the wooden block tower. Exactly. I mean, it's a pretty popular. And eventually I found a store that I had to drive about five miles to and I got the game. And it was $19.95. And and so in this case, bricks and mortar kind of won, but they didn't really win. Because I walked into the store and they didn't do it. They should have said, wait a second, you're in our store A human being in our store. (laughs) What is this phenomenon? (laughs) Right. Let's rugby tackle him. Let's, you know. (laughs) Grab his wallet. (laughs) Exactly. What could they have done? Maybe the one thing they could have done is ask for my email address or sign me up to a subscription, an innovative subscription model where they send me one random board game every month, which I can keep or return or or, or send to, you know, uh, a person of need you know, like Tom's Shoes does, which again, Tom's Shoes, are they the best shoes in the market? I have no idea. But when you buy one, they donate one to, you know, to to charity or to someone of need. This is the kind of conversation that has to happen. And it is a, it is a conversation that is, um, you know, we've discussed culture, we've discussed change, we've discussed speed. Um, but ultimately it comes down fundamentally to a business model um, and the ability to almost... You know, embrace your heresy and put yourself out of business. And if a company isn't prepared to embrace the thing that they fear the most, um, they are probably going to be out of business.
0: I hate using Apple as an example because, like you said before, they're kind of the uh, the exception to the rule in every circumstance. Um, but again, it's it's another perfect example of you know you bite the bullet and you kill the headphone jack, and everyone gets upset for a little while, but. Um, you move on, and, and they're willing to cannibalise existing product lines and existing um, features to enable the next round of innovation. So, um, right, and
1: and by the way, they've embraced their kind of heresy, as I call it, many times. I mean, they opened up their iPod to to Windows, which is embracing their arch enemy um, in many respects. Um, you know, that's one way. They the other thing that Steve Jobs did, did is he basically killed half of his products you know, in consolidating and and, and focusing. Mm -hmm. So, they've actually done many times, they've gone against the, you know, they've cut against the grain or or swum against the current, I should say, and done something that might not have been considered to be smart or popular or considered to be a best practice.
0: So, Joseph, I'm going to ask you this again then. How does an organization plan for that? Because Apple is an anomaly. How can we replicate that with you know, within Barnes & Noble or Dimmicks, which is our kind of major book uh, retailer here in Australia, or all the other bricks and mortar retail stores that are struggling now, or anything else that's being um, put out of business, the taxi industry by Uber and, and hotels by Airbnb and those kinds of things. How can these industries with incumbency and a lot of investment in things like land and, um, and people take on a-, a basically, these software-only businesses,
1: well, I mean, I mean, part of the answer is, the, the softball answer is they hire you to consult with them uh, <laughs> or, or they hire me, you know. Um, but, but I mean, but, but, but the answer is, you know, they've got to be able to, um, you know, embrace the thing that, that ultimately could cannibalize or put themselves out of business. So, you know, when you look at, when you look at, or, or you know, New York Times, I think January 2nd, Wrote, they said, for non tech companies, if you can't build it, buy it, um, which is exactly the vision that I had when I started Evolution five years ago. Basically, saying, these startups that are putting you out of business, if you can't build this yourself, go and buy them. And, and I think that's one of the answers, which is embrace the thing that you fear the most or embrace this entrepreneurial revolution and, and be prepared to innovate. Um, and that innovation, uh, you know, will ultimately cannibalize or threaten to cannibalize, um, if not your core business, at least the legacy of the people that sustain that core business. Um, but from that, you know, that act can come your legacy. So embrace your heresy to define your legacy. So let me give you an example, a crazy example. McDonald's, right? What would happen if McDonald's had to put a scale in, in their fast food outlets. Um, what would happen if McDonald's actually had a scale that you had to step on in order to get to the counter to order your, you know, your Big Mac? Um, what would happen if their dollar menu was actually influenced by the scale? So the dollar menu had a multiplier and the more <laughs> obese you were, the higher the actual pricing became. It's a fat tax. Uh, Fat tax, basically. Now, the whole point is it sounds almost, you know, you probably feel uncomfortable hearing me talk about this or people maybe that work for McDonald's that listen to your podcast are probably angry right now. But the fact is this heresy has happened in the US. Every fast food outlet has to put their calorie count on their menu. So when you go in now and you say, what the hell, 1200 calories for this? You know, you go and buy a popcorn at Yankee Stadium and go watch a baseball game. The smallest popcorn is is 2,800 calories or something ridiculous like that. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is transparency. What happens when suddenly, you know, there are no soda machines anymore in schools here in the U.S.? What happens when, you know, he, he didn't, I don't know if, if he ever succeeded, but Mayor Bloomberg, who is the mayor of New York City, wanted to outlaw the big gulps in in the 7-elevens the point is you know victor hugo once said there is nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come and this brings us all the way back to consumer empowerment it's less about i'm empowered and i can choose the brand that i want to the the crest versus the colgate it's more about my life and the world i live in and this consciousness that says i'm gonna make choices and i will vote with my with my tweet and with my pocketbook, a pocketbook, and, and and with my community, but ultimately, by doing that, the rising tide floats all boats. And if a company doesn't want to get on that, you know, or get on that bandwagon, they're going to be left behind
0: so Joseph let's talk about evolution uh, the agency that you started your most recent venture um, and uh, it's it's linking startups with brands so tell me about like why evolution exists so
1: so evol- evolution exists um, because of a question what if kodak acquired Instagram what if blockbuster had invested in in Netflix when they had the chance much to the conversation that you and I have had Uh, you know, today, Mm -hmm. which is this idea of building a bridge between startups and brands, between Madison Avenue and Mountain View, between corporations and startups or executives, uh, C-suite executives and entrepreneurs. I think it's based on this idea that, you know, today, the companies that are rising and growing and creating unbelievable market cap and, and market share and and have consumers' hearts and minds. Let's go back to per- perception, right? Hearts and minds. They're not the big corporations. They're not the Macy's, the Macy's and the Sears of the world. Um, they are, in fact, um, you know, the Amazons and the uh, and the Alibaba's. And you know, my I looked at this and I said, well, well first of all, two things. One is, you know, you've got all these startups tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of them with ideas but no money. And then you've got all these brands, let's call them 2,000, right, the global 2,000 corporations, and they have all this money but no ideas. So mm-hmm. I was like, wait a second. One has ideas but no money. One has money but no ideas. You guys should be talking to one another. Mm-hmm. And you don't and, – and, and as a corporation, you don't need to be a spectator. You don't need to be on the outside looking in, uh, looking at the VCs and the angels and this whole – Ecosystem of developers and designers and coders and entrepreneurs, you can absolutely play a part, an active part. And so I kind of looked at the space and I said, first of all, what if we could reverse engineer the startup from the brand backwards? What does that mean? Well, and where does it begin? I was like, well, it begins with advertising. It begins with recognizing that whether it's a GM or an AT&T or a PNG, or a Verizon. These are companies with billions of dollars of 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 not only just marketing of media dollars. And when you when you add to the advertising and the media dollars, and you look at you know at customer experience, and you look at corporate social responsibility, and you look at all of these dollars, I was like, wait a second, I know exactly where the money is going to come from. The question now becomes, how do you convince the executives that they have a right to play and a role to play in the startup ecosystem.
0: And, and and that's kind of what I what I wanted to ask you about. Like why would a brand want to invest in a startup? Like, beyond what we've spoken about, the, the Kodak buying Instagram or, or Blockbuster investing in Netflix, that's really easy to connect the dots in hindsight um, once you've almost been put out of business or you are put out of business in those two examples to say, oh, we should have maybe done something about that back, you know, five years ago. But uh, looking forward, those dots are really difficult to predict. The last word
1: that you said is so important. Which is this idea of um, they're so hard to predict? Yes and no, right? Could we have seen Airbnb coming? Probably not. Um, You know, the fact that I could rent out a room in my home uh, to a stranger, it's an insane, it's an insane thought. But yet, first of all, there are people, thought leaders, authors, um, consultants, change management boutiques, trendologists that are absolutely you know that have that have um, invested their careers in actually being able to plant the seeds or connect the dots or lay out the breadcrumbs. That that's the first point. But the other one is you know if you are uh, an airline or a hotel, let's just take a hotel for a second. Um, If you're a hotel that is completely full all the time, well, you've got no problem, right? Life is good. Um, You're, you're, you know, um, you're sold out consistently and that probably means you can increase your prices as well. But what happens when you've got excess supply? What What would happen if, you know, is it really a stretch to be able to say, how much does it cost us to service a room or how much does it cost us to not service the room? So an empty room costs us what in opportunity cost in, in foregone or, or lost revenue, but also in terms of redundancy with respect to our talent or our staff. Well, if you know what your cost of goods or your cost of services, if you know that and I'm making this up, it costs $82 for housekeeping and for, you know, uh, uh, you know, for a uh, front desk to check people in, whatever the case may be. Well, if you could get $83 for that room, why wouldn't you do that? And so in a way that's Priceline's model. That's one of the most innovative companies that I think from a business model that we've ever seen. One that just said, listen, if you're looking for a hotel room, um, Name your price, and we'll find you that room. And of course, all they were doing is plugging into a hotel, uh, into a hotel's booking engine, saying, "How much money are you prepared to give out an empty room?" Or if you're an airline, an empty seat. Now, I believe today we're all capable of being able to think like that, and I believe that you know through evolution we have those skills now because that's the way we think. And the way we think is the way entrepreneurs think. So by putting ourselves in an entrepreneur's shoes to be able to say two guys who could never get a cab or a car when they needed one started Uber, it makes so much sense today to think about ways of creating a marketplace between inefficient supply and demand. You could take what I just said now, a marketplace between inefficient supply and demand and apply it to almost any business business and any business model, including CPG for the most part. Uh, When you think about all these products that spoil or sell by dates, etc., I just gave a billion-dollar idea out to anybody who's thinking, what are we going to do with our excess
0: supply and our excess stock? Mm -hmm. And I guess what I want to ask, um, Joseph, is if you are dealing with, you know, CEOs and CMOs and um, those kinds of guys in, in the brand... Um, and then you've got startup founders on the other side. You're almost asking the, the the C-suite boardroom to become venture capitalists in some way, to invest in companies and and to employ a skill set that maybe they don't have. You know, the CEO of uh, some company knows how to run that company, but they don't know how to invest in businesses that may cannibalise it and, uh, and innovate and eventually um, uh, take it over.
1: Well, well, well. By the way, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head, uh, and the answer is you don't. But you find someone who does. Um, so you hire the venture capitalist, or you hire the investment banker, or you aqua hire the startup and actually use. You know, the startup founder becomes your chief investment officer, or ch- or, or chief, you know, um, startup investment officer, or chief digital officer. Mm-hmm. So. So, I mean, I, I think the point you made is, is very, very astute, which is, but we are not venture capitalists. Look, you know, when I, when I started off and I said, what if Kodak acquired Instagram? What I didn't say was the dot, 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 right? I stopped with a dot, dot, dot. But the rest of the dot, dot, dot is they probably would have destroyed them and killed them. <laughs> so, so But that doesn't mean that we should give up. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try again. That doesn't mean we shouldn't figure out how to get that right, because it is the right solution, you know, at the end of the day, which is figuring it out, but also having the humility, um, as opposed to the arrogance of saying, this is not natural to us. But for me, the vision is so powerful, which is that, you know, this, this was the vision of zero. In a perfect world, the optimal paid media budget would be zero. Why would we pay for attention if we're paying attention? The real vision behind zero was to move from being a tenant, which is renting media, to being a landlord, which is owning and monetizing your assets. In other words, marketing actually can be a, re- uh, a revenue generator. What if Kodak acquired Instagram for a billion dollars and then sold them to Facebook for $19 billion, mm-hmm. which is what Facebook paid for WhatsApp? Mm-hmm. So that kind of thinking to me, I mean, that's so exciting. That's what I would do on day one if I joined and I worked for a large corporation. I would say, wait a second, why should VCs have all the fun? Why should entrepreneurs have all the fun? We're smart. We're talented. We're bright. We have resources. We have global networks. And most importantly, we've got a boatload of money. Surely we, could, we have a right to play in this space.
0: And so, in lieu of joining a big corporate and doing that uh, on a one-on-one basis, you started an agency to do exactly that. So, uh, what are some of the results you're seeing, or, or some examples of um, of clients that you work with?
1: Well, we've had the pleasure of now. We've probably put about 300 startups in front of our clients, but the 300 startups that have been very carefully vetted and and curated and shortlisted and and scored and mentored and trained um, have led to over 80 pilot programs in markets. And uh, and we've actually done a number of programs in Australia. We've done one for Mondelez and one for Nestle in terms of uh, focusing on mobile and, and shopper marketing. And you, know, and, you know, part of the idea of the pilot program, look, in some cases there have been strategic partnerships um, that we've, been able to facilitate so for example uh putting um purina in in contact with a company called petnostics which is a company that allows you know you to kind of take a sample of urine from your pet um and put it into a little cup and you know with all those like squares those like you know those litmus or ph squares that you see that when you test your pool or whatever okay. yep. you shake it around and use your Phones, uh, cameras, an augmented reality layer to immediately get uh, all these real-time uh, health indicators uh, relating to your pet. Um, so that was a strategic partnership that we helped um, connect and facilitate. That was less about we want to be more innovative in sampling or influencer marketing or content or mobile or e-commerce or big data. And we've done all of those. I mean, we've done all of those you know test and learns and and pilot programs but ultimately the real ones that are of substance are the ones that venture beyond the test and learn or the the quick hit or the experiment that lead to these strategic partnerships that you know who knows where they can go
0: Mm -hmm. great so joseph last couple of questions um what's exciting you right now you haven't figured that out based on this conversation. <laughs>
1: uh, this podcast is exciting me right now. Uh, my AirPods, no, um, no, but 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 definitely, I would say I gave a presentation last week, and I said most people write books to shill a company. I create companies to shill a book. Uh, in other words, to shill a vision. And I really, really think that you know when I look back on these four books on you know, life off to the 30-second spot, join the conversation, flip the final on zero. These books, these ideas excite me a lot. Um, and when you put them all together right now, obviously, in addition to talking about these books, I actually cr- put my money where my mouth is to create a company that focuses on this very exciting idea of building a bridge between startups and brands, mm-hmm. you know, of these corporations thinking and acting like investors and inventors, you know, and entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs. To me, this is one of the most exciting opportunities we've ever had in the history of marketing. And if you add a couple of little, you know, sprinkling of, of subpoints, points, um, I'm definitely, you know, that, that sub point would be the whole idea of employee engagement and, and entrepreneurial engagement as opposed to entrepreneurial. It's like really being able to tap into and harness the creative and inventive and entrepreneurial power of employees. Because for me, that's a real sweet spot between the outside world of the entrepreneurial revolution and the inside world of employee engagement.
0: Absolutely. And the employees are the ones that have direct contact with your customers. So, they know directly what, uh, what, what they're dealing with and what their challenges are and what their problems are. So, if you empower them to- um, Exactly. Yeah, Totally. Uh, joseph who should i interview next on mate podcast
1: so i'll probably give you um well first of all have you interviewed mitch yet because I, I did another Aussie podcast, and I've been trying to get hold of Mitch, and he's been very elusive.
0: I, I haven't so, got. To, uh, I haven't. I haven't spoken to Mitch yet. Um, Bob Norb. Come on, Mitch. So <laughs> Bob uh, recommended I speak to Mitch. So um, I'll, uh, I'll. I'll definitely have a chat to him.
1: Come on, Mitch Joel, get your act together. I'm challenging you to the <laughs> ice bucket challenge. No. Um, you know, I'll I'll give you um I'll give you a guy who um you know if you can get him I think he'd be amazing. Um, he's he's very difficult to pin down because he's very busy and 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 travels a lot. But probably one of the smartest guys in marketing and advertising that I know is, is a, a guy by the name of Rashad Tabaka, Tabakawala. So Rashad Tabakawala has you know he he's a big muckety-muck at publicis, within publicists but you know he's worked within all their digital companies like uh like the and 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 a whole bunch of of um you know even related to Starcom, di- di- you know different agencies within publicis. he's just you know quite frankly one of the smartest if not the smartest guy i know and if you can get him on the show i think he would just be magnificent
0: Great, thanks for the recommendation. Uh, so, Joseph, where can people find you online? So they can as uh, Twitter, I think, is
1: still uh, is still around, although you know, only it, just, only just. It, it's uh, you know, uh, when when uh, when uh, when Trump is done with Twitter, I'm pretty sure it will be done. <laughs> um, but until then, um, I'm Jaffe Juice on Twitter, and um, you know, you could probably find me, although although I mean embarrassed to say my content creation has been abysmal that's what happens when you're actually focusing on 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 running a business Um, but you can find me on all the usual channels my blog is called jaffy juice in fact i'm jaffy juice on most social media channels and of course you can find me on linkedin or or google just just
0: search for me and you'll find me and and i'll pop some uh, links in the show notes to your books as well if people want to check them out because they are a great read well, Joseph, thank, thank you for you. coming on the show. Um, this was uh, a fascinating discussion. I actually had a lot of fun and and uh, learned uh, a great deal as well. So, thank you. Yeah,
1: it, it, it was my pleasure, and I apologise if, if it felt like a a giant one hour rant. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, this is what happens when it's uh, ten p.m. at night on the <laughs> on the east coast. <laughs> um, I enjoyed it as well, and I hope uh, I hope people listening as well, um, you know, enjoy it too.
0: Uh, And look, that's kind of your style, right, to to go on a bit of a rant. So, um, that's why I wanted to to have you on the show. Only when I'm comfortable. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Mate. For more information, head to the website matepodcast.com where you can find show notes, um, other episodes and more. Thanks to Joe for coming on the episode today. I'm sorry we went over time. Um, It was just such a great chat. So, I hope you got to kiss the kids. Good night. This episode was edited by Josh Armour from ArmaPod Productions The Mate logo is by Courtney Carmen, And the music is by Nine Inch Nails Used under a Creative Commons license Mate Podcast is uh, Growing like crazy um, There's now over 500 people That are tuning in every single week To listen to this show So uh, thank you for, uh, for your attention um, And I hope you're really getting some value out of it This show is made with love Dedication and uh, A little sprinkle of joy in my hometown, Melbourne, Australia, I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was A Jaffrey Product. Bye for now.
1: A Jaffrey Juice says, and Mitch Joel, you're next. <laughs> and I'll retweet it. I'll go, come on, Mitch, stop being so busy. <laughs>